Hello, welcome to Writing Remix, a podcast brought to you by the USC Writing Program. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Writing Remix podcast. I'm Dan Dissinger. I'm Katie McNay. And today we are recording a special episode for the second annual 2021 Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival. Uh, the topic is contending with misinformation in the community and the classroom. Um, and we're really looking forward to being part of this again. Really amazing event. So uh, today, though, we have an amazing guest for this episode. We are here with Danielle Mastro Giovanni, uh, Supervisor of Humanities in the uh, New Brunswick Schools. Danielle, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Exciting. So why don't you uh, let our audience know a little bit about yourself and then we, yeah, we'll just jump right in. Okay. So I am a Humanities Supervisor in New Brunswick, which is fairly large to large mid-sized school district in New Jersey. Um, and I came to that position kind of through a very alternate track. Uh, I actually started thinking I was going to grow up to be a famous poet one day. And I, while sitting in New York in Washington Square Park, thinking about how that was slightly illogical, I saw a preschool uh, full of children walking into the park and going to the playground. And somehow I end up speaking to someone there and I take a job, you know, a part-time job working in this preschool, still having no idea that I would be a teacher or an educator. I'm actually the daughter of a lifelong educator who warned me against going that route because she said that I would probably get fired because I was a little bit too rebellious <laughs> to work within the system. So interesting now that I am the system in some ways, um, which is that roundabout. And so I started working with children and I, I realized that my uh, contributions could be a little bit bigger than just self-serving whatever idea I thought was, you know, that I thought I had about what I was going to do with my life. And so after a cross country camping trip in my Dodge Daytona with no air conditioning for three months, I decided I was going to leave New York. And like every good hippie in the 90s, I was going to go west. And I ended up in Colorado at Naropa, which is the only accredited Buddhist university in this country. And that's where I started my undergraduate degree in um, early childhood education. And from there, I decided to take what I had learned back to where I was from. And I was a public school teacher in East New York, Brooklyn. Uh, and that's where I did a master's degree at Brooklyn College uh, in education with a minor in um, social sciences. So I did a lot of cultural studies mm -hmm. in tandem with education. Uh, so kind of combining what I took from Naropa with focus on culturally responsive education at that time had a different name. It's been around a long time. And so that's where I focused my master's uh, action research was on the impact of using diverse literature in urban classrooms. Um, hmm. And that was in 2001. And so now full circle uh, 2021, I decided that uh, about maybe four or five years ago, while I never really wanted to stop working with children or advocating for children, I thought that it would, I would get kind of a broader grasp on what I was able to influence if I made the step into leadership. I'm a certified principal and superintendent, but I work directly uh, under a superintendent supervising this particular department in which my main focuses are uh, ELA and social studies. Wow. A lot of misinformation in both of those topics. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
that, Katie? Go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know if we want to jump into the misinformation piece just yet, but I was just really fascinated by that journey. And I love how it's so rewarding sometimes to kind of look back and be like, wow, this is like this, you know, step in this direction took me here. And like, we don't really see where we're going. But then you look back in retrospect, you're like, wow, it all came together in this beautiful way. Um, mm. And that's so that's so amazing. And you were telling us before we started recording about the education you received in Europa or like the training to work in education, which sounded like so incredible too. that sort of perspective on, you know, feeding your own self and soul and like making sure that you have that sort of emotional capacity to work with children or others. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you wanted to like touch on that a little bit too, before we sure. continue, because I thought it was so great. Sure. So one of the things that I guess was really uh, integral to that particular program was your commitment to working on yourself mm -hmm. and understanding that yourself is who you bring will bring to a classroom. Um, at that time, it didn't really discuss that topic in the way that is kind of a hot topic in education now. So it really didn't look through the lens of like bias and who you were in terms of your you know, cultural identity, ethnic identity, socioeconomic identity, gender, et cetera. But it did look at your experiences. And so I think that's like a groundwork for some of the work that I do, even though it's kind of shifted in focus and we have a better understanding of which of these identity factors, particularly in our country, right, in mm -hmm. our context, are shaping education and all of our experiences with other people. Um, but at that time, it was really about, you know, who are you? Like, what was your experience crawling? You know, what was your experience when you began to speak? What was your experience when you first went to school? Because all of those things are going to come up for you when you're in a classroom and it's coming up for another child. And so being able to identify that these things might be what we call now like biases or triggers or whatnot, mm -hmm. um, that was kind of the foundation. Um, and then the other really important piece, I think, is that real belief that everybody is basically good right? Because mm -hmm. if everybody is basically good, then we're going to work towards equity because we believe that everybody deserves the same access and opportunity. And everybody's story deserves to be told and heard. Everybody's perspective deserves to be represented. And so I think those things really pushed me to do the work, you know, that teaching is an act of service, but it's not a self-serving act of service, you know, like we're genuinely here in service of children. I think that gets lost a lot in the conversation and, and decisions that are made are not done in service of children or in service of children and their families. And so I think that I try to keep those things in mind because I do have a, a seat at a decision-making table now. And I take that um, position and that privilege really seriously. And so that's kind of where Naropa, I think, keeps me moving in the right direction or at least helps me reflect on the decisions I'm making and whether or not they were the best in service of those that I'm here to serve. Mm. I've spoken about my Naropa experience on this podcast a few times and <laughs> it, it <laughs> more than a few times, but I think it's a big like, experience, you know, <laughs> and it's a, it was a, it's a, it's a unique experience. I've never a pro, like, and I, I would say like, I think that one part that I, would love to go back and do because there was, a, you know, I approached it wanting to do the writing and I was very cynical about some of the other things, but, you know, I opened up 
towards the end a lot more but that's because of the constant kind of work that the professors at Naropa did to kind of be like okay we're not going to try to hammer these things into this student but Dan will come to it when he's ready or in his way he's doing these things and also like the contemplative nature to it and looking at oneself and finding that part of an of you in the education is such an interesting approach and I think it's also helped a lot of things that I went and have done as a teacher, but also the way I love conversing with people like on this podcast, like this is an act of listening. And I feel like that kind of training in the classroom and then at the administrative level is so imperative to kind of be able to know oneself as you're making decisions for others. And uh, that's really great. I, um, it's really interesting to hear a perspective from the program from Naropa in the whole other program than the MFA program and seeing that those values, where they, how they kind of work in all sorts of other spaces. For sure. Amazing. Mm. Yeah. I think that, that, that foundation was, I feel like it ran throughout any program because ultimately, even if you were writing, you were going to contribute in some way, you Mm. know? And so I think it's really important to know what you're contributing. Um, Mm. I can say that I don't know that that practice of reflection, I have not, other than reflect on your lesson plan, like when was the time when a lesson went well? When was the time, you know, that there's some reflection there. But in terms of it being like an, an all the time process, mm. uh, I can't name another teacher program or any mm. program that really embeds that as the foundation. And, you know, as I think about what my next moves will be, you know, when I finish writing my dissertation and if I move into higher education, you know, how can I bring some of that to other teacher training programs, you know, just that doesn't have to be Buddhist necessarily in nature, but just that, you know, act of, of reflection. And what I found is that's really, you know, when you study culturally responsive leadership, which is what my dissertation is focused on, critical Mm -hmm. self-reflection is one of the four components. Mm -hmm. And it's so important, but it's so left out of like every teacher or leadership training program in the way that it was addressed at Naropa. You know, it was like intentional and explicit and there were methods and you discussed it, you know, and there were safe spaces to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, like that really helped this work because you need to have all of that. If you don't have that foundation anywhere and then you're thrust into a position where, you know, you're asked Mm -hmm. to reflect critically you have no idea how to what do does that, that mean yeah right exactly and that that takes us to the you know the problem with misinformation that like is so enormous now too because people don't know how like you're saying like we all have we all come to the world with our unique set of experiences and like our particular worldview and perspective but if we haven't done that self-reflection to realize like oh i'm looking at things through a certain lens um, if that's just invisible, then, you know, like, oh, this is just the way it is. And so it's so hard to, like, uh, be confronted with something that challenges that viewpoint. So I think that's, like, that's so critical. And um, is it something that, as you're planning curriculum, like, do you build that in for students to kind of have opportunities to reflect on their own, you know, particular yes. worldview or experience? So I think, you know, when I started doing, I moved into teaching middle school before I transitioned out of the classroom. Mm. and of course, what I was asked to teach were not necessarily reflective of the experiences of my students in terms of novels. And then just historical Mm. perspective was never, there was one perspective and it was the white Eurocentric male conqueror perspective. I mean, it is what it is. That's how it was written. And so 
what would be interesting at that time is we would re go to primary sources, right? So you'd, I'd have my eighth graders like mm -hmm. read the textbook about the Emancipation Proclamation and how slavery was ended, you know, and here's like mm -hmm. Lincoln as a hero. Mm -hmm. And then we'd read Lincoln's journals. Mm. And I'd ask them to kind of think about what's like, what's happening here. Mm -hmm. And they're like, this doesn't make sense. Like what Lincoln wrote about what he cared about in terms of slavery and what he thought about, you know, folks that were brought here to be enslaved does not line up with him being heralded as this hero. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say, well, like, why do you think that is? And so then we'd look at like, who wrote the textbook and like, where is that textbook company located? And like, what is the, you know, demographics there? And, you mm. know, can we find a textbook that's written by anybody else? And the truth was mm. we couldn't, you know, now there's like great texts, you know, there's like the African-American Latinx history, which can be used in conjunction. And there's so much work, you know, with primary source documents and, you know, all the Zin work, like, you know, there, there is all of this like rethinking history stuff. But there wasn't so much, like, so openly then. And so I think it started that combating with misinformation was like, okay, whose voice is not here? Mm -hmm. And now let's go, like, find that voice. So, like, who else was, you know, writing about what was going on? And then it would get, you know, you would say, well, not many slaves because they weren't allowed to read or write. Mm -hmm. So, like, let's think yeah. about, like, why are these voices completely missing like yes there were voices there was frederick Douglass. there were many people who did learn to read and write you know despite the um oppression that was happening but not enough and those stories never made it into the textbooks and so for my students who at that time were you know 99.9 percent .9 african-american it was really important for them to identify that their story or their voice wasn't there hmm. in order to give them that i guess investment try to get them invested in how important and powerful their voice was and so now, I mean, look at like all the like sixteen nineteen project. All it does is introduce a, a different perspective, and it's causing like a civil war in our country. You know, um, that that's what's going. I think that's like the context we're in now is that there's all this information, and mm -hmm. students are being asked to sort out what's real, what's not real. You know, think critically about things. But if we don't give them all the pieces, how can we ask them? to think critically and to form their own decisions about information. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been following these conversations um, about eliminating certain aspects of the curriculum for students or, you know, saying we can't, you know, talk about history in these terms or in that terms. And, and it's, it, it's like the defense of misinformation, right? It's just like, well, what is, what do you, what, do people think is going to happen if this other if all the stories come out and if the history is truly out there a hundred percent there's like a fear that all of a sudden like their lives are going to drastically change it's just like yeah pos in a in a positive way we can learn together and move forward i just but that's power dynamic right like people are like i'm going to lose my my power i'm going to lose my place in society i'm going to and it's such an interesting it's so interesting and sad to see people defend misinformation and purposeful misinformation, like not even just accident. This is on purpose. First it was, and now it's even more reinforced. It's like, no, 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 let's keep eliminating. Let's keep eliminating. I don't know how you, how do you battle that? It's like very curious to see like teachers under attack for that now. Well, it's interesting too, that you mentioned like the hoarding of power. Cause that's one of the mm. 10 
you know, tenants of white supremacy culture. And like, if we can't even name that these things are like, these are the norms of this particular culture, right? And that's one of them in in other societies and cultures and ways that people live. There's not this idea that we have to hoard power, right? There's communal existences Mm -hmm. that are very different. But we grow up where we, you know, that's what we're taught, like, we need to keep ourselves in power. And I think, I forget who said it, and it might have been Bettina Love, and I want to make sure that I, I give credit to who said it at some point when I was listening. I think it was her. And they said something about it's not about what you're willing to give, right, or do. It's about what you're willing to give up. So are you mm-hmm. willing to give up the narrative that your hero is not so heroic, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm like an Italian girl from Jersey. Columbus Day is a contentious topic in this state. You know, there oh, were people yeah. literally, like, doing crazy protests to keep Columbus, and it's like, come on, like, why are we, like, you're right, like, what's the threat to you to just say, Mm -hmm. actually, Mm -hmm. he didn't do these things, and he did do these other things, and these other things we, like, didn't put in the textbook, but, like, maybe we need to look at what genocide is, and why we then, you know, kind of okayed genocide, right, because Mm -hmm. that's what we were founded on, and Mm -hmm. it was for that power, and so why don't we just talk about it, and understand Mm -hmm. That sometimes these things are like, I don't want to use human nature because that's not my belief, right? Mm-hmm. My belief is that it's not human nature, that these are learned things. Mm-hmm. But some people chalk it up to like, well, that's human nature. Everybody wants to survive. And you're like, yeah, no, that's not human nature. That's misinformation, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's, um, it is very curious, very curious conversation mm-hmm. <laughs> that yeah. people are having. It's interesting to me just how like, the average person, like you're saying, you know, someone lives in New Jersey, maybe could feel so threatened by that. And I think, again, it kind of comes back to like, not having that, that skill set or being taught to do that, like self reflection to think like, well, why am I feeling threatened by this, right? Because there, mm-hmm. I don't think that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of white people aren't aware of the power that they hold, like consciously, but like some part of them recognizes that, like, wait, giving up that narrative means I am losing something, but I don't know exactly what that is, or I don't want to think about that too much. I just know I don't like it. And so I'm going to react, mm-hmm. right? Very interesting and sad. But yeah, I, 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 mean, I love that there is so much more good information coming out and a lot of it coming from the younger generation too, like things on Twitter or TikTok, where it's just like so much education. And so I feel like I feel hopeful. Mm. It's interesting because I think students at this point are feeling like they know more than their teachers in a lot of instances. Oh, interesting. A lot of the work that I do centers, literally centers student voices. So it's like, okay, so there's this district and they know that there's problems, but they don't know what they are. The typical thing to do is just like look at state achievement data. And you're like, well, that's already biased because it was Mm. based on a state achievement test that's biased. So Mm -hmm. why don't we talk to kids, Mm -hmm. right? And so- Mm we talk to kids, you know, we talk to kids and kids tell us exactly what the problems are. And a lot of them feel that they know more than their teachers now about these critical topics. So, Mm. you know, there's kids who know more about their own history than their teachers, you know, there's kids who have already read stamped or, or whatnot, you know, coming into Mm. the school year and their teachers don't even know what they're talking about in terms of, you know, Mm. things, you know, race, there's, I mean, with like LGBTQ plus kids, I mean, the trans kids are teaching the classes Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. what it means to be trans. I mean, this is like, and this is in affluent, you know, places that I Mm -hmm. won't mention that I might work with. 
they do. They know more than their teachers Mm -hmm. and teachers. You know, I, I'm the biggest cheerleader for teachers. I taught in a classroom for literally two decades. So I'm not, I'm not trying to vilify teachers, but I feel like teachers have a responsibility to stay Mm -hmm. abreast of what's going on in the world, in changing history. Like there is no need to keep reteaching incorrect history. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make any sense, you know? And if you really want to be responsive, you need to know about all of your students, you know, and, and kids should be able to look to teachers for mentorship academically or otherwise. And that becomes really difficult when the teacher's information is incorrect Mm -hmm. and the student tries to correct it. I remember my, my own kids, they were in fifth grade and they had a teacher, a science teacher who insisted that the sky was blue because of the reflection in the water. And my precarious scientists were like, that's not true. And proceeded to try to explain that it was something to do with molecules in this. I don't even know what it is. I have no idea how they knew, but apparently they did. Mm. And um, the teacher was adamant Mm. that they were wrong because she didn't want to be wrong. Mm -hmm. So you'd rather have all these kids believing incorrect information instead of saying something like, you know, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe I have it mixed up. Let's Google it. Yeah. (laughs) And in five seconds, right? And also, it's like humbling yourself. Like, we don't know everything. I certainly don't know. You know how many times a day I have to Google things? And some things that I'd like to not admit I have to Google, you know, like (laughs) there's words and what does that mean? Or what are they talking about? Mm -hmm. And I get the information, you know, in a couple scrolls. So I just am curious about why there isn't this culture of inquiry as a norm so that we can understand what's misinformation and what's you know, correct. Mm-hmm. Like we're really going to tell a kid they're wrong mm-hmm. and the kid's right. And I, it's not just because it's my kids, because again, I don't even know where they got that information, <laughs> but I do know that she was wrong mm-hmm. and that, you know, it was a simple fix. It's like, Oh, let's, who knows? Let's look it up. Yeah. Why don't we do that? Like why as educators, don't we admit that there's misinformation or misunderstandings and then just work together to come to a common understanding. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that a lot of that goes back to just the way the school system has been set up historically, which is like, we're going to tell you this information, you memorize it, then we're going to test you on it. And it Mm -hmm. isn't really geared towards inquiry, like you were saying, and like being okay with saying, I don't know the answer. So let's figure it out. Like, I think about like the intense, like imposter syndrome in grad school, where everyone's like, posturing and trying to act like they already know what the professor's talking about when really all of us are like, I don't, I'm like, can't even keep up with this lecture right now. <laughs> like, you know, um, like mentally taking notes so that I can go look up all this stuff after. Um, but it's because we don't um, want to admit, or at least like in my experience, um, going through the school system, like that meant that if you didn't know something, it meant you were stupid, like that you, mm-hmm. you know, no one wants to be, to feel like they're wrong or that they're ignorant. And so, yeah, but I think that it's so important. Like uh, when I'd have students ask me questions, like, yeah, I'm like, let's, I'd be like, can someone look that up? Like, I don't know, let's figure it out, you know? Yeah, Yeah, because like, even when we think about even in higher ed, right? Like there was so many, we would have these discussions before the the semester would start and how many professors would be like, well, I'm going to tell my students they're not allowed to use their phone. And I'm like, well, maybe we can use this smartphone in class. And all of a sudden, like, I would just go, hey, technology is a thing. 
If you have your phone, you want to look something up and we're talking about, it, look it up. Here we go. And once I like, once we started doing that, it's not just became more active. The students were like, oh, I can actually add to this even more. Oh, I have something to say. You know, I have this experience. I come in with knowledge already, even if it's not in a textbook or an accredited peer review journal or whatever. I'm coming in with this knowledge. And I think it comes from the way my teaching you know, experience started when I was told, you know, before going into a class being like, remember, you know, everything and they know nothing. And I'm like, that yeah. was, I, I get why that was told to me, but at the same time, I'm just like, that's, that's the mentality that keeps students oppressed in the class and misinformation going. But then I feel like right now it is also the mentality that students are resisting and pushing against way more and we're going to see it way more this coming semester i believe coming back from being in on zoom for like a year and a half and college students really pushing against this being like no like there is no way that we are putting up with this i really feel like we're going to see a lot of resistance coming up i was wondering how you um how people um kind of i guess react to kind of the more contemplative aspects of like how you approach these things i think for me it's about being transparent that everything is a process we avoid this like so quick solution, quick fix solutions, you know, and it's not just like this yes or no situation. So for me personally, how I've approached. So one of the things that was huge was when I came there into that district, um, I looked at what texts uh, students were reading and I did like mm -hmm. an analysis using um, a culturally responsive scorecard that came out of NYU, mm -hmm. um, which not only looked at like who was the character in the book, but also like who wrote the book. Mm -hmm. you know, from a variety of perspectives, what was the theme of the book? You know, like, is it all doom and gloom? Like, you know, are we reading anything that's celebrating or celebratory? Mm -hmm. There was a, a variety of angles that I was looking at and we were nowhere. I mean, I think out of all of the books, it was something like 87% were written and about white. And I'm going to say male, maybe, maybe not. But mm -hmm. I mean, it was like a pretty traditional canon mm -hmm. in the high school. And the kids were, this was just, this is my fourth year in this particular position. I mean, the kids were still reading like Judy Bloom and Ramona Quimby. And it's like, why? There's so many other books mm -hmm. out there now. Like, mm -hmm. why are we still reading these books? So again, I, I did this audit and, and I was able in the second year to change like 50% of the content. So then we were up to maybe 60 something percent opposite. And then in the last year, I changed the rest. So I think in, in the district I serve, just to be clear, is like at least 80 percent of students go home to homes that don't speak English, predominantly mm. Spanish. And then uh, the, you know, white students in our district are, I'm, I'm not even sure, maybe two to six percent, something like that. Mm. So, you know, it's mostly students whose stories have been minoritized and we wanted to reverse that narrative obviously and so teachers were really resistant mm -hmm. they were really resistant because they didn't want to give up what they knew i know how to teach ramona quimby age eight i've taught it for 65 years <laughs> we need to change this right um and so one of the things that we did was we really tried to engage teachers in the process and them understanding mm -hmm. this is a process right so it's not going to happen overnight we're going to like, let's start look at selecting books. Like what suggestions do you have? 
But if you have a suggestion, you got to kind of give me a rationale on these markers. Like who does it feature? Why is it important to our students or relevant to our students? What connections might it have to a historical content that, you know, is maybe something that we're not exploring enough mm -hmm. with students. Mm -hmm. um, and you couldn't get any of that from Ramona Quimby. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was, mm -hmm. it wasn't hitting any of the markers. So nobody yeah. could really combat that. So when you take out Ramona Quimby and you replace it with Morning Girl, which features a Taino boy and girl living on an island, which we can assume is like Puerto Rico, um, just because of the particular population that was living there. And it goes right until Columbus lands on the shore. Mm. And it ends with a section of his journal, like wow. his actual journal which teachers thought was made up by the author. I just would like to say, I found out a year and a half later. I'm like, wait a minute. No, that's what is it? No, that's not the author's craft. They didn't make up a, wow. a journal of Columbus. Wow. This is his actual journal peoples. Um, so yeah. So um, I realized that they couldn't combat misinformation because they were also very misinformed. And they didn't, they didn't really understand it. So I'm asking for these contributions. I'm pulling in teachers who are informed in some ways. And we start crafting these resource guides that started pointed out, you know, kind of things that teachers might want to address, right? Mm -hmm. But what, what I think was most important was we began all these units with self-reflection questions. And that mm -hmm. speaks to, you know, I kind of went a roundabout way to tell you like how that approach came into yeah. public education by the back door, right? So it's mm. through this curricular process. I'm asking teachers to reflect on like, okay, well, does it, you know, does what you're suggesting hit all these things? And now, okay, now that we've selected these texts, what might teachers want to know? And so it would say like content focused, critical self-reflection questions. Like, what do you, what do you know about the discovery of America? Like, what's your truth? Mm. You know, um, what do you know about the impacts of colonization on indigenous people? Like, what do you know about, you know, belief systems of indigenous people, like what, and it was just question, didn't say they knew or didn't know, you know, we just asked them to consider something so that they could Google it before they start teaching the lesson. You know, I clearly can't reteach you history from the beginning of time till now, but when you're about to teach a unit where it's really integrated into say a novel, which all of our novels have this integrated historical content and context, right. we wanted to start with those reflection questions. So that like, if you didn't know, you know, if you don't know what redlining is, like, I'm not going to call you out, but you're going to have to address it when you teach seed folks. So Google mm -hmm. it and just have an understanding because it's going to come up and you're not going to be able to do the work unless you have a basic understanding. So that was built in really um, obviously. Um, and then just for me, like, I'm not afraid to, to say I don't know anything ever, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm not afraid to have teachers in the process. I want teacher voice in the process because if I can mm. get teachers bought in, you know, if this is teacher created and teacher led, it's very different. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to be willing to let go of power in some ways, you know, and really think about what's going to be the most effective way to move this work. And it's not just me telling you everything to do. You know, mm. it's, it's a collaborative process of figuring out what needs to be done, I think. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right. Otherwise, you'll keep meeting that resistance. But if you're inviting them into the process, like what, you know, what do you suggest? Like why? And like yeah. kind of, <laughs> you know, like nudging them down that um, 
in that process. You'd like to think it works. I can't say it's like a one size fits all or that everyone in my entire district is into, uh, I don't want to give that like, oh yeah, there's this magic like wand that I will when I get these questions <laughs> and everybody's teaching about these difficult topics. Um, yeah. But I think, but I'm seeing, I'm seeing growth and I'm seeing growth in teachers who were really resistant, who aren't. So Whatever that percentage is, I don't know. I'm not that kind of person mm. where I'm like, oh, Sally was like, you know, stuck over here in 2019. And now Sally, I have no idea, but I mm-hmm. do feel a shift in a movement. And mm-hmm. I can say that there have been specific examples of teachers who have said verbally, you know, I wasn't really ready to do this work, but like this process of engaging with it has pulled me along. And so, mm. you know, you got to take your small successes, even if it's like five out of 10,000 people. <laughs> no, definitely. I mean, everyone counts, right? Like each one of those, because then that teacher is going to influence like, you know, so many children and like it's a ripple effect or their peers, you know, so. Fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. That's the goal. That's incredible. Yeah, I feel it's it's interesting as we're having this conversation, how like the idea of misinformation is kind of there are other there are other factors i feel like sometimes a lot of teachers you know specifically you know white teachers that we you know as a white you know might feel like misinformation they're being replaced like oh well these books don't matter and i was like well there are other books that's kind of like couple them like show that there's a spectrum of like ideas that are happening no one's saying that this text is like let's get rid of it 100 percent it's like let's move past but like if you want to bring it up be like here's something that's similar or here's something let's read these two together and talk about it kind of like the way you did um you know the textbook and then these journals being like yeah we have this thing here we i kind of know it's problematic but let's couple with this to then create this critical thinking avenue here and i think there's something to be said about how you know to kind of demystify this idea of like total takeover and like replacing of everything you've ever learned. It's like, no, we're adding like Mm. it's knowledge seeking. It's, it's, it's lifelong. And I think that's also hard because I guess sometimes, you know, there are some teachers that don't want to continue to do that work and, and, you know, teaching is hard and it's emotional, it's mental, it's physical. And a lot of the times people get very burnt out because there's a lot of other aspects to the job that people don't really consider. Um, But it is the work, you know, and it's like, the you you the idea of continually learning is part of the job and i think that's the that is part of the combat to misinformation is to always be learning because you know when you're a teacher i'm noticing now too even more so every year the the widening generational gap between me and my first year college students and i'm just like i need to either to do two things one continue to learn and two be open to hearing to like handing as much authority over to my students to have them kind of also teach and bring in because that's how this is going to work if i'm if i don't then you know what am i doing i'm not in service to them as you said which i find it's really interesting aspect to kind of like combating this misinformation is to understand it as service to the teach to the students. Yeah, I think, you know, to speak to what you said as well, like in our situation, teachers were, you know, they wanted to dust off their Romeo and Juliet lesson plans, even though, you know, not really thinking right or critically reflecting about, okay, who's sitting in front of me, you know, um, for a student who's still trying to acquire and master a language, that's second to theirs. And and we are very, um, I'm just gonna say in my district, which I do wanna like shout out, like we are fully not into t- 
um, having students transition from monolingual to monolingual. So we don't want you to speak Spanish and then English. We are very highly concerned with bilingualism and ensuring mm -hmm. that students preserve their native language and learn a second one, right? Mm -hmm. So that in itself is like an act of correcting this information because bilingual students typically do like better on tests, better in, I mean, they have this wealth of, of language, right? And, mm -hmm. and roots and, and all this stuff that help them, you know, come to be successful. So that's something that we were, you know, highly concerned with. Um, but even in that, like, is it necessary for them to read Shakespeare, which is not even in English? So now, how is someone who's struggling at this point in time to, to translate in their head what they're reading in English to what it means, which is mm. typically in Spanish, right? Now you have to do it from Old English. So it's like, I don't even know what Shakespeare's saying at the time, right? Mm. So we started to take these books out and put in books that kids like to read. I mean, young adult fiction right now is like on fire. I don't know if I feel like I'm 16 yeah. again and all I want to read is young adult fiction <laughs> because it's like really good. There are mm -hmm. so many talented authors, you know? So we took out Romeo and Juliet and we put in uh, Elizabeth Acevedo's Poet X. Mm. It's a love story. It's written in poetry, but it takes place in Washington Heights. The girl's Dominican. They're listening to Kendrick Lamar, you know, like mm -hmm. kids are reading and they're reading mm -hmm. poems and they're analyzing them and they're figuring out, you know, interpretive and figurative language and they're having conversations. Like, why is one necessary? Why is it that you have to be able to read Shakespeare in order to be able to understand, you know, certain literary devices? Right. Our mm -hmm. kids can read, you know, they can read. But I don't want to read if you give me something that's highly frustrating or just not interesting. Like, right. if you right. can't figure out that relevance like you said add to it right if you can't say okay i am going to teach romeo and juliet but i'm going to teach it in conjunction with poet x because i want i want students to understand poetry as this genre and all the different ways it can be used to tell a long story or a narrative like that's fine but if that's the only thing kids are tapping out they're tapping yeah. out the minute they walk in the door and so mm. you know we talk about student engagement like let them if you want them to be better readers, they have to read, right? Oh, yeah. We know that we get better at reading the more that we read. So give kids things that they want to read and they're going to get better. Like, I think that in itself, it's like to be a good reader, right? You don't have to be a master of the canon. No. At all. Because I can no. tell you, I'm not a master of the canon <laughs> and I think I'm doing all right, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and everything you're saying is is so pertinent to like even you know uh, graduate and doctoral programs that the teachers go through, right? Because if those programs are also not open to the idea that hip hop is a literature, or that there are multilingual uh, possibilities in dissertations or multimodal graduate projects, like we are, then also you know misinforming misinforming the grad students that my even the students in my class are also are going to all be like me They're, but they're they aren't they're multilingual they have histories and stories they're possibly you know also neurodivergent there, mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that we're kind of also misinforming new teachers coming up still a lot of the times in a lot of these programs because then they because i always feel like that idea of teaching training is kind of like that, that you need to train students, uh, teachers, but you also the other part, like you got to also train them with the inner work and train them in ways in which to see themselves as part of the process instead of training them to just kind of 
perform something and then walk away from it. You know, there's, there's a lot of different types of trainings that like a, an educator truly needs to kind of continue to sharpen and practice over time. Like we talked about teachers and we talked about programs like what, you know, with misinformation and the kind of, you know, work you do, um, you know, what is parent response to it also? The community response is also important because as we're seeing right now in across the country, community response to the board of education uh, choices or, you know, choices that teachers want to make or education or, you know, critical race theory and everything is like the community is the response has been, I mean, unreal in my opinion, a lot of times. What do you think? How do you, how do we engage that? Like, I mean, it's a big question, obviously, but like if we can't, if we're also working with teachers and administrators, like how do we engage community? So like in my particular job, because the community I work in is the community Mm -hmm. that I work in, you know, socio demographic, you know, everything is in my favor. Right. So Mm -hmm. I have not had opposition to changing texts and histories because they're reflective of my community. Mm. The issue, going back to what we talked about, is in places where the students and the families are predominantly white Mm -hmm. and they are okay with a predominantly white worldview of curriculum. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so the approach that my partners and I have been really tossing around and using, um, we were reading Elena Aguilar's book, um, The Art of coaching for equity. wanted to mm. make sure I quoted the right one. And I'm going to, I don't know the person who did this work. So I apologize. Someone Google it. Um, but there's something when you're doing identity work about moral identity, um, which really mm. traces back to this belief in basic goodness that comes from Naropa. And it's this, that our moral identity is that we believe that we're good people, right? We all mm. believe we're good, um, which stops us from being able to correct our misinformation. And so the mm. shift is, is not that we're not good and it's not to vilify, you know, people, particularly, I think white people get really like, you know, upset when they feel vilified, mm. you know, it's not my fault. And then there's all this white fragility, or you know, whatever. But for us, we just try to take this perspective of what does it mean to be good ish, right? Like mm. we're trying to make good choices. We think sometimes like our intention is good, but our outcomes might not be. Right. So it doesn't take away that our identity where we feel like good people or that we're good people. But can we just reframe it to be like we're good ish? We're all in this process. Um, Mm. And I don't think that a lot of communities that have experienced a lot of pushback to critical race theory, to the 1619 project, you know, to these taking away of Columbus Day and replacing it with Indigenous Peoples Day or adding Juneteenth to the calendar. I mean, there's people like fighting like wars over these things that yeah. you're like, why does it matter that much, you know? But um, to them, not in the other way, just to be clear, you know, why, mm-hmm. like we had talked about. And um, we're just, you know, I'm trying to embody that, that moral identity piece and work with folks around that. But it is really interesting um, because I know that there's a lot of districts in those positions who are putting out mission statements um, and who are publishing on their websites goals to make, make ensure that students leave 
globally aware and culturally competent, you know, um, I've even seen a board resolution that they were going to eradicate racism from their schools, you know, by June 2021. Wow. I'm like, wow, like send me that magic formula. Cause yeah. it took a lot of years to mm. build up. I'm not sure that we can just make a board policy and it goes away. You know, you can make a policy to start addressing, you know, That's identifying, right. naming and addressing racist practices, but you certainly are not eliminating them in the next 10 months. Like, you know, that's just ridiculous. But there's a lot of fear. And that's what I, Mm. there's a lot of fear. And there's fear on the part of superintendents who are positioned in these districts because they know that they answer to boards, sometimes elected, sometimes appointed, and they answer to parents. And, Mm. you know, a superintendent's position is really precarious because it's not tenured and, you know, it's always up in the air. Superintendencies can come and go. And I think that a lot of people who basically are at that top, you know, decision-making place where they're going to say, yes, we're teaching critical race theory. It's going to be embedded into our history classes so that students understand the context with which things were happening and decisions that, you know, were made that impacted history or we're not right. Or Mm. we're going to let you use the 1619 project or we're not, you know, Mm. I've literally had superintendents say, what is, you know, what is your connection to the 1619 Mm. project? Because it's on my resume that I'm in the inaugural educators. You know, there's 39 districts across the country, and we're trying to figure out how do these things fit into our education. We're not saying everyone drop what you're doing. We're only learning the 1619 project. We're looking at, you know, how do all of these curated resources that are nowhere to be found, Mm -hmm. where do they fit in, right? Where can we use this song or this essay or this photograph or whatever? Um, And they're petrified. And so it's it's really interesting because those are some of the questions, you know, mm-hmm. when when we're being interviewed, you know, in my consulting firm or if I'm speaking, you know, to to superintendents in other districts, they are really nervous to know that you're doing that work. And I think mm-hmm. it's because of like what you said, this fear of letting go of something that um, I don't know. I'm not really sure what's happening. I don't I don't understand why it's such a scary thing for folks. And I guess that for mm-hmm. me sometimes is problematic because I just mm-hmm. want to understand, you know, part of, like yeah. you said, it's this listening. So having to endure conversations where you're just like, what is, I don't get it, but I guess you have to just be able to, to listen and try to understand it. And, and I think that's why we've decided to take this, you know, moral identity and having people start there because it's a little mm-hmm. easier for them to say, or to hear, like, we actually think you're good. Like, we think you're good-ish, but let's mm-hmm. do some work so that we can be better. Mm. Yeah, because like you said, people don't like feeling like they're being attacked or being told that they're the ones who are perpetuating oppression or like they're the bad guys, right? So immediately puts them on the defensive instead of, so like finding a way to reframe that I think is really uh, useful. You know, it's like, it feels like, like a sellout yeah. sometimes because I want to be in there like, mm-hmm. nah, you are the reason, <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but I also yeah. know that we may not make progress. That's right. Yeah. That's right. If we don't understand everyone's perspective. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. As, you know, nauseating as it might be to try to understand them. <laughs> It's important to, you know, it's important to know because you might sit at that table to make a decision in a district where 
you know, people are writing to the superintendent and calling. I mean, literally, there are so many districts, even in progressive New Jersey, where they're like, you better not teach my kid critical race theory. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But I mean, I think that comes back to like people being misinformed about what that is, exactly. right? Like, God, I think I know. they don't understand, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, like back to what you're saying, like, why are they being threatened? And I think it's because in their mind, maybe it is like, we're throwing out all like everything that was on the curriculum before. And it's all going to be like focused on black history now or something like that. Like, I don't know. I don't know what they're picturing or why that upsets them so much. But again, I do think it comes back to like, they've you know, maybe they've heard something on some right wing talk show or whatever. That's like, that's twisted it. Somebody and should they, do their so... dissertation on that. Somebody <laughs> should look at, you know, people's perceptions of critical race theory in different pockets and just what they think yeah. it means. Mm-hmm. Because you're, I think yeah. that people are misinformed and they don't mm-hmm. know, and they just are called to action against something that they don't really understand. Um, yeah that or they're just totally racist you know one or the other but you know but the thing is there are people who I don't I wouldn't particularly peg as being racist who Mm. you know for political reasons are so adverse and I do think it's because they don't really know what they're adverse to they don't really understand what they're fighting against I mean I think even taking the idea of misinformation and being like a lot of times people in districts or states um, get or cities, whatever, get misinformed even as what a teacher's job or the job or professors and what, what we do as, you know, educators and the misinformation of what we do and what we want to do also then perpetuates that, that kind of resistance against something like critical race theory. Like, Oh, all professors are these radical people who are radicalizing the students to do this. It's just like, have you been on a college campus? Like I, that's I don't I teach I've been teaching for like 10 years or so I've been a student for 12 and you know and the thing is like I've never seen that like I mean the most radical school I've ever been at was Naropa no one told us it's time to overthrow the world like they were like go out there be peaceful be like look at yourself and like and be in service to the community it's just like if that's radical that's helping your neighbor then I don't you know so like it's really interesting how misinformation how deep it goes into all the facets, not just of what the information that's in the classroom, but how it, how it affects the entire community just by like all the information that gets misinformed to everybody. And that relay. I saw a tweet the other day. I was trying to find it just now, but I couldn't, um, where someone was saying that like parents blame professors for their students going to university and then coming home with like more radical ideas and they're like no it's not from professors it's because they're suddenly meeting a whole range of like diverse people and like connecting with them and having those conversations and then it's opening up to new perspectives just from being there in that space and meeting other people like the professors themselves are probably not doing anything super radical in the classroom (laughs) and I thought that was really interesting that it just it really does come down like like so much of what our conversation has Mm. been focused on is just like being willing to engage with another perspective or have that conversation mm-hmm. and listen um, and have your yeah eyes open to something different and kind of reflect on where you're coming from as well. Like, 
So yeah. it's lack of exposure. You know, we still live in really mm-hmm. insular communities. You know, our mm-hmm. our country, as desegregated as it likes to think it is, is so segregated. You know, and yeah. school systems are segregated, and students' experiences are segregated. And so, you know, they they grow up in a bubble, whatever that bubble is, and then all of a sudden, you're right, they're dropped on this like state campus, mm-hmm. and they're like, "What's going on here? I don't understand." And what the difference is now is those students are the ones coming back to these high schools where their parents are fighting against critical race Mm -hmm. theory. And they're saying, "Um, I was completely unprepared for the world. Like, I don't know what bubble you kept me in, but I was completely unprepared. When the world like caught on fire last Mm -hmm. summer, I did not understand what was happening, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and they are calling schools to action you know, because Mm -hmm. they want to be informed. They want to understand, you know, the experience of their, their roommate or their, you know, dorm mates or Mm -hmm. whomever it is that they never were, you know, exposed to before because they, they can recognize that they have no, they have no information. And so I think we said earlier, you know, about like the, the generation gap or whatever, and who's pushing for what. And those kids are pushing because now they mm-hmm. know what it was like to grow up in this mm-hmm. like completely cut off bubble or existence that they mm-hmm. thought was okay because they didn't know anything else. Mm-hmm. And then they're going back and being like, hey, I don't know this college and career readiness, but I wasn't ready. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I mean, I give them a lot of credit because they've really been fighting you know, the high school kids, the kids that have left for college, they've been fighting this. They're asking for it. You know, they're asking for mm-hmm. changes. They're asking for their teachers to be informed. Um, and they're asking for correct information. You know, they're mm-hmm. saying, why should I have thought this particular thing, you know, all the way until 10th grade? And then I read mm-hmm. this thing and it like blew my head off. You know, my kids were mm-hmm. mad in eighth grade. They were mad when they had to come to these conclusions. They're like, I don't understand. Yeah. I thought that this was all true. And now I'm like 13 and you're unpacking it. Like, why, why do we do that? Let's just start teaching the truth. <laughs> right. Good, the bad, you know, like it is what it is. Yeah. Things happen. What's the history is mm-hmm. not supposed to be subjective. Yeah. It's supposed to be objective. And you can't be objective if you only know one side of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, just even going back to the Columbus thing, like even in New York, like being from New York and, having an Italian family and being like it being part of like that Italian pride, but it's like, we could still be proud to be Italian. That has nothing. That's not tied to Columbus. Like, I'm sorry. That's not my, my Italian pride isn't tied to Columbus. So it's odd. The kind of ways we, what we fixate on to continue a misinformed existence Mm -hmm. instead of being like, I can still have that and let go of that. It didn't, her it didn't change who i am it just allowed for kind of the world to kind of you know exhale a little more and allow more in so that it enriches our experience i think one thing that misinformation does is like it 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 dulls and dangerously dulls down the actual experience that's going on by letting everything and understanding all these stories it's an enriching experience it actually should be celebrated i think and I think people do kind of do this without it being in a classroom, but they don't know also that they're having these experiences. But when someone names it and puts it, you know, and starts to kind of go, we're going to put this in curriculum, people get scared as if it's like you, it's like they haven't been doing these things already, you know, and it's really quite 
uh, it's just interesting to kind of see as this conversation has been going on being like, it's all common sense. It's all like happens. Like you walk on the street, you see a person that's different. You might strike a conversation. Boom. You've just had that experience. Why can't that be something that we kind of develop practice around in a classroom? Right. I mean, because if we really are going with the mirrors and windows, right, there's that piece mm-hmm. that always gets left out of her work. And it's that she, you know, the, the founder of mirrors and windows said it's a sliding glass door. It's what gives you access. You know, it's not just about looking at or looking at yourself. It's also about being able then to kind of walk in that world. And if you live in an insulated place, sometimes the only way to do that is through curriculum, right? Like Mm -hmm. I can't redistrict the state of New Jersey to ensure that every district is going to be desegregated. I don't have that particular power. And to do that, a lot of things that would need to happen, right? You need to like move lines and, and it, when it couldn't can't be funded in the way it's funded based on property tax. like you know there's a whole system that's keeping it that way and i can't do yeah. that but i can go to a predominantly white neighborhood and make sure that the kids are at least reading diverse texts that don't mm-hmm. you know um always paint other in a negative light you know mm-hmm. um and i can also ensure that you know in my district that students read books that are reflective of themselves in a positive light and that also they understand you know like that doesn't mean that we're vilifying all white folks either right so what role have allies played and we talk a lot about that when we look at all different things you know whether it be race or not but like what is the role of an ally and where has allyship really come up in history you know where And it's interesting, like they'll find women fought for this thing, you know, or like, you know, there were white people involved in the civil rights movement or, you know, and those things are still like common misinformation that just students don't necessarily dig into. And and so I think, like I said, it's it's really about making sure that you've woven together everyone's perspective that's contributed so that students understand that it's not just this this single story. Right. And so Mm -hmm. that's really what it gets gets back to is that there's not there's not one story. There's never one story. Right. Mm -hmm. All three of us are going to walk away from this particular experience and have a different narrative of what happened. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I think students need to understand and be able to critically think about. Mm. Mm. That feels like the perfect note to end on. That was so nicely said. Yeah. I don't know. Is there anything else that you want to add? Um, Danielle or Dan? Just thank you. I I mean, I I am so happy that we got to have this conversation. This has been um, eye opening and just so deep. And I know this can go and go on and on. I know that, you know, the work is never done. And so I just want to also kind of just, you know, acknowledge the, all the work that you do, uh, because it, it is, it is never ending work. It's hard work and it's work. That's just, you know, a fully embodied job, mind, spirit, you know, embodied, like it's all that. And, and I just want to thank you for that. And thank you for being on. And this was such a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I had been on the other side of the mic for the last couple of months doing my research. And one thing that a lot of people said at the end was like, oh, this was like my process of self-reflection. And so it was interesting, you know, for me to be able to think about some of these things critically as well. So thank you for the opportunity and for even engaging in this conversation and for this carnival to be engaging in this conversation. Like I said, this was, we weren't talking about this stuff 10 years ago. And so I think no better time than now. We're all talking about it. So thanks for, uh, you know, just involving me, allowing me to contribute.
absolutely. Yeah, thank you. We want to thank everyone for listening to the episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe. You can find show notes and a listening guide to the episode on our website, writingremixpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at writingremixpod. And we'll see you next week for another Writing Remix.